there. Here we are again, another episode of the Dishcast. Thanks, as always, for your support and your subscriptions, which keep coming in. Thank you. We're now at, a, I think, 152,000 people get this, and the podcast is, is doing better than ever. And that's partly because we've had some amazing guests, and we have some coming up on interesting people. And this week, we have the New York Times's David Leonhardt, who is a journalist and writes the New York Times flagship daily newspaper, The Morning, which you probably get every day, and contributes to the Sunday review section and co-hosts The Argument, a weekly opinion podcast with Ross Douthat and Michelle Goldberg. His new book, his first book, and you know, he's so productive, you can't believe it's just his first book, but it is. It's a really fun read. I enjoyed it. It's called The Story of the American Dream. Ours was the shining future. David, so lovely to have you. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's great to be on your podcast after all of these years of reading you. Oh, well, it's very nice to see you again. I, I, I miss you from those times we used to bump at each other at maybe 10 years ago in, in, in yeah. Washington before you all fled to our, our, our respective homes and see nobody at all <laughs> except our pets and family. David, I always start with this question. Um, and it may, I don't know whether you, how, how much you want to say about it, but uh, how would you describe where you were born and grew up? How do you, yeah. how do you think of yourself in, in, in terms of the great American dream? I was once asked at some appearance at a college to describe the, the long winding journey that I took to my career. And I said, I think there's actually a chance that mine is shorter and less winding than almost anyone else's career. It isn't, it's, a, it's not. It's, it's a, <laughs> we've had some shaggy dog tails on this podcast <laughs> and yours is not so shaggy. Well, so, so I'm from New York. I'm a third generation New York City native. <clears throat> and I grew up as a big sports fan. And I happened to live in Boston with my family, my parents and my sister from ages two to eight. And I became a huge sports fan, as many people do in Boston. And I fell in love with reading the Boston Globe sports section every day. This is the late 70s and early 1980s. And I just loved the idea that this thing came to our house every day and told us what was going on in the world. And at the time, what I really cared about in the world was, was the Red Sox and and the Patriots and some other sports. And and if you had asked me at the time, what do I want to become? I don't know that I would have said a journalist, but it's sort of obvious in retrospect, I was making these dorky little fake newspapers in elementary school. And then I got to high school in New York and got a chance to work on a high school newspaper with a bunch of other teenagers who understood that journalism was a chance to cause trouble and have fun. And we could criticize the administration. And people actually cared when you wrote things down, which was this incredibly empowering feeling for a teenager. And so by then, I was interested in things beyond sports, politics. And so I, I really worked a ton on both my high school paper and, high, and college paper. And I loved that whole experience. And I did the whole newspaper internship circuit at Boston Globe, Washington Post. And yeah, and you know, I come from a family. My dad, my late father was a, was a high school teacher. And my mother was a copy editor and just an inveterate reader when I was growing up. And so I just grew up completely surrounded by words and newspapers and books and I feel really lucky that I've gotten to basically do that for my career. I always think that journalists owe something of a debt to sports because, as you point out, a large number of people don't want to read about bloody politics. They want to read about 
the sports, and then we managed to shoehorn in the news alongside it. And of course, one of the things that's happened with online media and the disintermediation of everything is that we don't get to do that so much anymore. And so we actually have to make the case for political journalism as political journalism, not just as something you get along with the sports pages. I think that's right. And look, I think national journalism from a business perspective is remarkably healthy. I'm not saying that any one media property is going to exist forever. But if, you know, if if the Dishcast or the New York Times were to disappear tomorrow, I'm quite confident things would rise up to replace them. They would be different. Excuse me. <laughs> so I, I paired it with I, the New York Times. I feel like I'm completely <laughs> irreplaceable. But yeah. But, well, look, 10 million subscribers, right? That's what you've got. I just found yeah. out. That's, yeah. that's um, huge. It's a lot. But I actually think that local journalism doesn't have this model that 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 is managed to survive the internet. And I think one of the mistakes, I'm not saying that if only people in local journalism were smarter, their problems would be solved because their problems are a lot bigger than national journalism. But I think one of the mistakes that local journalism has made sometimes is forgetting the point you just made, which is local journalism's business model was basically sports scores and classified ads and, and obituaries and just things that were service journalism and also kind of pleasant. And then around that, they wrapped the stories, the accountability stories about the school board or city hall. And, and you can't, you can't replicate that model just with the stories about school board or city hall. And, um, and I hope there's someone out there who can reinvent local journalism in a digital way that actually has a lot of the stuff that people really, really want, you know, yeah, close coverage of youth sports and things like that. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just hard to staple them all together to make them yes. read in, in one package, which is, which is the genius of what we used to do. I remember at the Daily Telegraph when I went there, I would say about two thirds of its readership bought it entirely for football cricket and rugby <laughs> yeah. and and they were naturally conservative inclined tend, people who tend to be big passionate supporters of traditional teams were often kind of right wing but anyway so we we gave them the sports coverage they wanted and then the the political coverage they never asked for yeah <laughs> look even now i i still get print newspapers for a variety of reasons one is i still like print i like the fact that no notification pops up from from a colleague of mine or or a relative of mine demanding my attention i also since i work on this daily newsletter in some ways we're trying to produce a new version of a newspaper so i like seeing what the old versions do but we get at our house the wall street journal the new york times and the washington post and when my children let me i always start the day by reading the washington post sports section it's like okay i can deal with that to start my morning and then i'll start worrying about things like come on the war but yes exactly <laughs> exactly but are you saying you get these in on all a uh, dead tree you, yes you, yes you even read? though i'm a digital journalist of the New York Times, we we still get all the print newspapers. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't read the New York Times print newspaper as much as I read the Post and the Journal, because by the time it comes, I've already read a lot of it inside our system or something like that. Right. But I still find part of it, again, is that you don't get interrupted by notifications. There's something calming about looking at paper rather than a screen. I still really like spending my breakfast with print newspapers, and then I move on for the rest of the day to looking at it on my phone. Such an old fogey. <laughs> I sort of gave up paper a long time ago, but I, I just don't like things. I'm, I'm a bit of a minimalist when it comes to stuff like that. So the internet yeah. was wonderful for me. But anyway, let's talk about your book because it yes. really begins 
with something that's in the air right now with a lot of people's minds, which is this, this idea of a golden age that America had in the middle of the 20th century, essentially, when it seemed to be experiencing sort of unparalleled economic growth and much greater equality in terms of how that wealth was generated and spent. It seemed to had, have more cohesion as a country, a better understanding of, of nationhood, uh, higher trust in institutions. And as we look around ourselves today, we, we, see, we see ourselves in a terrible age in, in some ways, as opposed to this. Now, what I want to challenge you about is that, is that to what extent was the golden age truly a function of specific policies pursued by the American government? And to what extent was it just luck, contingency, history, and, and where the world economies were at that time, where industrialization was at that time, which allowed you to do things like massive road investments under Eisenhower, for example, which you can't do twice. In other words, that we, we, we or you can repair them, but you can't have that kind of gains. In other words, that, that we're being unfair to ourselves, really, that, that, that some of that some of that remarkable equality and prosperity were a function of Americans just being lucky in a period when the rest of the world was reeling. So I think the, the, your last sentence there was some of, and I certainly agree with that. I mean, the United States was destined to decline in relative terms, both politically and economically, from where it was in the decades immediately after World War II, for all kinds of reasons. You know, perhaps most importantly, the rest of the world was was quite hobbled in those decades afterwards. I mean, Western Europe and Japan were digging out from the rubble. Much of the sem- Southern Hemisphere was 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 just emerging from colonialism, and these two massive countries, China and the Soviet Union, as well as the countries that w- were their client states, were doing using this economic system. System, communism that just doesn't work. And so absolutely to all of that. The, the question I would then ask, though, is, is it the case then that none of the policies that we put in place during those decades were important to the really rapid growth that we had? And as you noted, the very equally shared growth. And I actually think both the experience during those decades, right, the 30 glorious years, as the French call them, as well as the experience of the last four decades suggests that, in fact, some of the policies we put in place during those decades were really important contributors to both growth and to widely shared growth. And some of the ways we've moved away from those policies have meaningfully hurt growth and have, and have made it more unequal in the decades since. And so I still do think there are important lessons from those decades of the 40s, 50s, 60s, even while acknowledging the, the very important caveat that you just asked me about. So thinking about those policies, it seems to me you, 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 you describe a variety of them, really, and be interesting to break them out a little bit. One of them was a kind of more consensual economic model in which big, big business, a much stronger union movement, and the government essentially came to some sort of agreement on where growth would happen and how wages would be protected and where the country was going, as opposed to the much more deregulated system and that we came up with in the 1970s. Um, also, tight immigration restrictions until 1965, yes. low crime in those years, before, 19, before the 1960s, and a certain kind of cultural, 
one could say, I mean, a, a cultural unification in a way, although there are many ways in which other people would interpret that as essentially a rather oppressive kind of unification. There was a definite, clear American identity. And you go back and I just absorbed it as a kid in Britain from the movies of the time. A white, working class, Protestant, well-organized country that seems... Straight. Very straight, yes. Very patriarchal. You know, madmen and all that. But it did seem to work. And when we look back on it, we, we have a certain amount of fondness for it. What were the key things you think that made it successful? The key policies? I do think we should get to immigration some way, but that's not where I'm going to start. Cause, to. Okay, because I don't think it's the most important for this answer. But I'm excited to talk to you about it. So, uh, look, I really do think that that two things I would highlight as being absolutely first order. One is investment, and the second is labor unions. And and on investment, Eisenhower didn't just build the highway system, as you talked about. He made the biggest increase in R&D as a share of GDP of any president in the 20th century. He was both a fiscal conservative who balanced the budget during some of his years in office and, and reduced some of the Truman-Roosevelt spending. But this area, federal R&D and general research, he really increased. It actually doesn't need to be a huge part of the federal budget. And I think that conservatives are always going to be in favor of a smaller government and liberals of a bigger government. It's That's tautological, at least using the American definition of those terms. But I think there's another important frame, which is whether you're in favor of a larger or a smaller government, how much of government is oriented toward the future as opposed to the present. And I really do think in those decades, we had more of government oriented toward the future. So California was building these incredible Cal State and University of California campuses and, and massively expanding its higher ed system. We were building the highway system. We were spending all this money on federal R&D. I mean, the federal government financed essentially all of the early computer industry. One of the, the figures in the book is Grace Hopper, who's this early computer scientist who helped really pioneer a whole bunch of early computer breakthroughs. A side story is that the computer she worked on helped develop an analysis for CBS News for the 1952 election, which was essentially identical in concept to the New York Times needle that people love to pretend they hate, but actually just kind of like to follow on election night. Uh, we didn't invent anything new and we invented that needle. So the federal government basically invents the computer science industry. It builds the highway system. It, it really expands schools. And we can come back to why I think that we should continue to expand education over time, that we shouldn't stop. And in, in recent decades, we've done so much less of that future-oriented investment. And while you're right, we can't rebuild the highway system, we can build other things. And the story that I tell that to me highlights how we've lost sense of the future is it takes longer today to go from New York to Los Angeles than it did 50 years ago. The traffic you sit in on the way to the airport is worse. The security lines are much worse. The actual scheduled flight time is about a half hour longer. And then you land and you have to deal with the traffic and the, and the hassles on the other end as well. It's remarkable that we've made no progress in getting across the country in 50 years. It's safer and it's cheaper, but the time-wise, no progress. And you look around the world to other countries and they have made progress in moving around more quickly. I mean, Andrew, I'm sure you've done some of these things. You can get from downtown Shanghai to the airport in eight minutes. It's longer than Times Square to LaGuardia Airport. And so I don't think we're running up against natural limits of how educated our population can be or, or on how we move around. And I just think in a whole bunch of ways, American society, both the left and the right, but I think probably particularly the right, is less oriented 
on making the kinds of investments that create, can create a better future. Now, I think I would have been more persuaded by that a year ago, but we, we have just had a pretty massive two big bills that have gone through that are throwing large amounts of money at climate change policies and, and infrastructure in a huge way. And we also have industrial policy going on with the CHIPS Act with an attempt to build up certain industries for the future, which, 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 which did get actually bipartisan support on both measures. So in some ways, it seems to me that the, 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 what you want is happening. Yes. That there is a natural move towards, and this, could, and this is not just on the left, because Trump moved in this direction too. I mean, Trump's infrastructure week, even though it never actually <laughs> fucking happened, was nonetheless a sign of this in the right direction. Yes. And you're also, it seems to me, I think we're also noticing that many figures on the right and many also in the center left are beginning to understand the importance of organized labor in terms of protecting the interests of the working classes in America. And, and, and there's a big discussion both on the left and the right about this right now, which is uh, encouraging, so, right? That, yes. <laughs> I, com I agree completely with all of that, right? So my argument is we had a model that was not, it's not replicable totally in terms of the decades after World War II. And as you pointed out, boy, we really don't want to return to American society in 1960. We really, don't. really don't. No, no, no. I mean, you've got to be like, what kind of, you have to be not only a straight, white, Protestant man, but you have to be an uncaring one, right, to want to return to, to, to that world, right? Yes, so, except, David, let's just move on from that, except that when you, when you look at family structure, for example, and you see out-of-wedlock births, and you see, there, it was in some of those senses, socially much better. If you look at African-American society in the 50s, it had much higher rates of marriage, much lower rates of divorce, much more parents living with children than currently. So there were some aspects that, that yes. seriously we should miss socially, as well as obviously horrible aspects that we shouldn't. Absolutely. So there are aspects we should miss socially and there are aspects we should miss, miss economically. And my argument is basically there are things that during these decades we did that really worked. And we don't have to go back to the reality of those decades to reclaim some of those successes. And and you're saying, yes, but aren't we beginning to recognize that? And and I'm absolutely the answer is yes. I think that large parts of the economic policy of the last 40 years we've had in this country, or 50 or 35, I'm not saying there's a clear dividing line, really haven't worked. And I completely agree with you that meaningful parts of both the political left and the political right are starting to grapple with those failures and look for a new way forward that isn't identical to the past, but borrows somewhat more from the decades where we had a, an economy that often seemed to work better and did work better for most people. I absolutely agree with that. And you could have added to your list, I mean, those the infrastructure bill and the chips bill got a meaningful number of Republican votes, right? Yes. So it's not just Trump, it's also some Republicans in the Senate. Which brings us to why did we abandon those policies? And 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 that's a very important discussion to be had. What happened in the 70s? What were the factors that led so many people, both in the US and elsewhere, to think that this social democratic model had kind of run its course? And yeah. one of the things that I, I, I think you, you didn't quite grapple with fully was the, the stagflation 
problem that emerged, the 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 conflicts between big business and labor that became irresolvable, the way in which unions did make certain industries unviable internationally. I grew up in a country where we were truly socialist and it was the most depressing and rigid and stultifying atmosphere you could possibly have grown up in. And you seem to imply that we moved away from those policies out of some sort of fit of peak or, or intellectual risk-taking. Oh, I, so I wouldn't, I, I didn't mean to put it that way. I don't think I did put it that way. So let me try to put it the way that I, that I, that I think happened. Please do. So, so I think the first important break is in the 1960s, we have Americans start to question all aspects of this sort of many aspects of this post-war society. And I think some of that questioning was really quite healthy. The, the shining example is the civil rights movement, right? We needed to question that aspect of it. But you really see in the early 60s, all kinds of questioning of the status quo. It's the emergence of Barry Goldwater on the right. It's SDS and the Port Huron Manifesto on the, on the left. You know, it's the feminine mystique. It's, it's all these things. It's just kind of an incredible bunch of questioning of American society in the early in the early 1960s. What's interesting actually is how little of that questioning initially is economic or at least how little of that questioning really takes off. Milton Friedman writes Capitalism and Friedman in, in Capitalism and Freedom in 1962 and he's really frustrated by how few places even review it. In fact, he keeps a list of the publications that didn't review the book in 1962. You will surely not be surprised to hear that the New York Times was on the list of publications that did not review it. Um, and so, and that's just not, so, so we, we get this in the 1960s, and yet there is all this cultural foment around other aspects of society. People are questioning the kind of society we have. Crime starts to rise during the same period. Some people say, well, crime's rising because of poverty, but that explanation is actually deeply unpersuasive. Poverty remains quite low in the 1960s. Crime seems to be rising for other reasons. It seems to be rising, in my view, connected to this larger idea of, of foment. People are less trusting. And so then we get to the 1970s. And what's interesting is that the case, this burgeoning case of the new right, that we need to move away from the, the economic model of the post-war years, is just not catching on at all. It's not just that Milton Friedman's book hasn't been reviewed. Michigan holds, as late as 1976, holds an initiative to cut taxes. Milton Friedman campaigns for it. It loses badly. Into the mid-70s, Americans still seem really quite comfortable with the economic status quo that we have. The questioning is much more about social and cultural issues, pornography, school busing, kind of less economic stuff. And then we get hit by the absolutely terrible economic situation of the 1970s, starting 50 years ago with the Yom Kippur War and the Arab oil embargo. Oil prices then stay high because OPEC understands how much power it has, the, the Iranian revolution contributes to it. And that's when, so that is the stagflation you talk about. And I do think that that overly aggressive union demands and Lyndon Johnson's guns and butter policies play a role in all that. Although I think oil prices were the biggest role. That opens up the American population to hearing this diagnosis that was coming from the new right, that actually all of our problems stem from too much government, too much institutions. We should shrink unions, shrink regulation, let companies grow much bigger than they were. And if we do all that, our economy will 
be much better than it had been. The left didn't really have creative answers about this. Jack Kemp said, you're just going to hear the same old answers from the left. I'm giving you new answers. And so I think it's reasonable that you had this new right movement saying, we have these problems, we have a diagnosis, and then they take office through, through Ronald Reagan, and they are able to implement many, many of their policies. They don't get rid of Social Security and Medicare, but they do deregulate. They do completely change our approach to antitrust. They do cut taxes in ways that would have been unthinkable under Eisenhower or Nixon. They do really shrink labor unions. And so part of what I'm trying to do is saying, okay, you came in with this diagnosis. You made a bunch of promises saying, if we put in place these, these policies, it'll benefit everyone. Did it benefit everyone? And I think the evidence is really strong that the post-1980 economy has actually really under-delivered for most Americans. And, and so that's how I think about the story of how we got here. I think it was reasonable to try something else. I think the thing we tried was really, really different and hasn't worked very well. When we say hasn't worked, of course, it's hard to find a control group for that. What was growth going to not take off? Anyway, I mean, when you look at other countries in that period, and it seems to me one of the things that could be said about the American economy since 1980 is that the growth rates have been higher than most European countries, most Western countries. Yes. Uh, that, in fact, at the end of that period, Americans do have unprecedented levels of wealth that Europeans, Western Europeans are not enjoying. And part of, and the argument would be that part of the reason for that is that the American deregulated economy has has been a miraculous engine for jobs and growth. Now, this is leaving aside the question of equality, which is a huge question. I totally understand, but I think to say that they didn't even have a, a decent effect on growth in some ways, even if it was at the expense of our fiscal balance, is is not not quite quite on the money. Am I, am I wrong there? No. Look, I think that I think you are right that you're, if you're looking at GDP rates, that which is a reasonable thing to look at. I don't mean that in, in a dismissive way at all. If you're looking at GDP rates, the United States has done relatively well compared with Europe. I think the problem is, is when you start to look at measures of most people's material well-being, the argument gets a lot, lot weaker. Okay. And so for the bottom 90% of Americans, incomes have grown more slowly than economic growth during these decades. They've also grown more slowly than they did in the decades before 1980. When you look at, when you look at things like material standards of living, it's actually not at all clear that the United States has higher material standards of living for median people, for most people than Europe does. Polls show that Americans are really unhappy with our economy. And to me, the most telling statistic, and it's the first chart in my book, and we can't know exactly how much of a role economics plays in this, but I think it plays a very big role. To me, the most telling statistic on how healthy is American society and what kind of living standards has our economy delivered for its people is that in 1980, the United States had a normal life expectancy for a rich country sort of in the middle. 
broadly similar to much of Western Europe, higher than a whole bunch of other rich countries, lower than a bunch of other rich countries. And starting around 1980, our growth rate and life expectancy really lags behind other countries. And by the early years of the 21st century, the United States has the lowest life expectancy of any rich country, lower than every country in Western Europe, lower than Canada, lower than Australia, lower than Japan and South Korea. It's not even that close anymore. And to me, this isn't one of these things in which was, well, maybe it was ever thus because, because of the contours of our population and this and that. I'm actually always open to those arguments. But it wasn't ever thus. <laughs> I mean, as recently as, as a few decades ago, we kind of had a normal life expectancy. And so I don't look at the post-1980 American economy and say it has been a happy story for most people, even if there have been some benefits to our approach. So we might have maybe goosed growth to some extent, but the way that growth is distributed the way the wealth is distributed from that, the way you've set up the society, it means that increasingly the wealthy are getting wealthier, people in the middle are treading water. I've seen some data recently that suggests that, for example, and you would know more about this than I do, that millennials are really not as far behind their parents as as is led to as we are led to believe. They're not hugely ahead of their parents, which is the huge new thing, but they're yes. not they're not going backwards as such, even though it might feel that way to them a lot of a lot of the time you could also argue i suppose in terms of the life expectancy and i'm just being devil's advocate here please david part of it is a function of plenty that they, we have incredible amounts of really bad very cheap food that we can we didn't have before that's it's extraordinary we also have cheaper goods basic goods. I mean, the price of clothing today, for example, is minimal. We also have huge technological advances, which it is hard to translate into simple economic pluses and minuses. So, for example, the fact that we now, unlike 1980, have in our pockets computers that can tell us, find almost any piece of information on the entire planet in our iPhones, that's a huge change in in the quality of life. Now, so I, I think it's complicated, but I, 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 I do see your point that, that certainly in terms of the really hard life that American capitalism now requires your median person to live, you can see why two parents working, both neither quite making it, huge increases in prices of things that the middle class family might like, such as college or preschool, daycare. So I can see that. But it is... It's, it's, it's complicated, and I'm not sure that simply restoring labor unions to where they were or simply massively ramping up domestic investment cures all of that. No, I don't think simply it does, although I think ramping up domestic investment would help. And I do think labor unions play a really important role. I mean, I've been in a union. I've been a manager at the New York Times who manages unions. I'm well, well aware of the flaws of unions. <laughs> they can be deeply imperfect. They can be corrupt. They can be filled with people who care more about themselves than about their members. All that's true. I think the problem is corporations are also deeply flawed. And when we have an economy with flawed corporations not being checked by flawed unions, we now really have a century of history that that suggests that you end up with really really high, really high inequality. And I think the, the academic research that, that tries to look at otherwise similar workers and see how much more union members make and see that 
although we can all name stories, namely Detroit in the 70s, where unions helped put businesses out uh, of business, that's actually not the norm. And mostly what unions do is they essentially shift the pie and they basically shift money away from the top executives uh, toward the workers. And you can end up with a situation where unions are so strong that it's bad, but it's you can also end up with a world that's too cold. And I, I think that's not the world we're in in America right now. We've seen in the last few years, actually, kind of some hope on that front. We have seen working class wages actually rise faster than than upper middle class wages the last three or four years, I think. I'm, I'm uh, That's off the top of my head. So there is some suggestion that some of this is is beginning to reverse itself and to what do you attribute that yeah so we so the trends of the last few years have been healthier in this realm than they were before now inflation has been so bad over the past couple of years that actually real wages real incomes for most americans have declined over the last couple of years so we shouldn't oversell how how much of a change this has been. I mean, Ramesh Ponaru just had a nice piece in the Washington Post saying, everyone's confused about why voters are angry when the economy is so good. Well, just look at real incomes and you know the economy is not that good. But having said that, with all the caveats, yes. And I think that's a reflection of a couple of things. We've had quite tight labor markets and tight labor markets are good for people at the bottom. We have also had a really significant movement to lift the minimum wage in both blue and red states across the country. I mean, the minimum wage has risen quite significantly in much of the country. It's sort of a grassroots success story of passing these initiatives. And it's also, to me, a big reminder that the American people are are, are progressive on economics and, and moderate or conservative on many social issues, which is exactly the opposite of what college students like to s- describe themselves as being in the 1990s. And, and they've, so also, I, they've also received a huge amount of government money through the through the COVID stimulus. Yes. And the and 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 lower income people have received a huge amount of government money. So all of that is true. I just don't think that I don't look at the last two years and say, oh my goodness, we're now in a new economy in which lower income people can expect that, that year to year they're going to be getting raises above inflation and above the rich. They haven't even been getting raises above inflation for the last two years. And so to me, it's an important period to reflect on. But it does virtually nothing to reverse the trends we've had of of recent decades. And it's not even clear to me that it's going to continue or has continued. How would you respond to the argument that, in fact, by by the changes in the global economy and the increasing rewards to those with brain power, the cognitive elite, that the the working class wages for unskilled labor is inevitably going to decline? relative to that of the brain industries, just in terms of what is actually now worth uh, worth something in, in the global marketplace. And therefore, in fact, education may make some of this even worse, not better. So first of all, I haven't talked about education. I, I mean, maybe I've implied it through investment, but I do think education is really vital. <laughs> and, and I think that education, labor unions shift the distribution of the pie. I don't think that they shrink the pie, but labor unions also don't really grow the pie, right? Education and investment has has an opportunity to expand the pie. And if you can expand education to people to make parts of the society that are not as educated now more educated, you could actually both lift growth and reduce inequality. So I just want to, as an aside, kind of 
absolutely endorse the idea that education needs to be a huge part of this along with other along with other solutions. I don't know. I mean, so the the argument is that the rise in inequality is just natural because companies are bigger and so CEOs jobs are more important and knowledge workers jobs are more important. I think there's some of that, but I also think that we've put in place a whole bunch of government policies that clearly turbocharge those effects. So we've massively cut the top marginal tax rate, which um, really leads top incomes to grow. We've deregulated finance, which leads finance and top incomes to grow. We've shrunk labor unions. And, and to me, those were not inevitable market outcomes. They were political choices that we made as a country and that have really contributed to inequality. And I don't think we should pretend that this has all been the workings of the market. It really has reflected political choices. I would also add, you know, one of the things that people said about, well, wait a second, can can in the today's global economy, can factories really unionize or aren't they just going to move to, you know, Mississippi or Kentucky or Vietnam or Mexico where there isn't unionized factory labor? Even if you set aside that argument or you say, okay, th- th- there's, there's something real there, I think it's sometimes overstated, but it is certainly the case that, that companies will sometimes move to escape higher wage labor, potentially unionized labor in the United States to go to other regions or countries. What's interesting though is we are moving to an economy that is increasingly service industry. And while you can move a factory to escape a union, you can't move a hospital You can't move a Starbucks serving a particular community. You can't even move an Amazon uh, warehouse, right? It's there to serve that community. And so I actually think that the shift toward a service economy makes it more plausible to imagine a world in which organized labor and collective bargaining plays a larger role in counterbalancing corporate power. Yeah, it it tends also... Uh, incidentally, to reward women disproportionately compared with men, because men's previous advantages in just manual labor and and brute force is less salient with with automation, with the way in which these things can be done more easily, in in which the projects aren't entirely the kind of bricks and mortar stuff that we used to have. Yeah, absolutely. Sophisticated than that. Let's, Let's talk about something that I found is really interesting. And one of the things that will rankle some of your fans is that you also think that immigration played a role in creating some of the golden years and that the 1965 Act really changed the dynamic there and and led to real pressures long-term on the wages of the working class in America. And, and maybe you could tease that out a little bit more. I mean, because in some ways, you know, the, the 65 Act, as you, as you really beautifully show, is one of the most <laughs> – it's one of the pieces of legislation that did – did exactly the opposite of what it was intended to do. Yes, and it, it's 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 and you can read the debates about 1965 immigration where they are telling you that no, this will not lead to any increase in the number of people coming to the United States, and also, by the way, that it will not they insist it would not change the ethnic composition of the United States. However, extraordinarily bizarre that was. That was something that Kennedy promised. Ted Kennedy promised on this on the on the House floor. So. From then on, you also had a really extraordinary historic rise in mass immigration, reaching where we are now, which is close to record ever proportion of the domestic population is foreign born. Tell me how that, how that ended the golden era or how it affected it anyway. 
Can I just go into that history a little bit more for a minute before we get into the economics and yes, politics? Because I do. think it's really important. It is. It's fascinating. So, Jay, basically, immigration to this Hi country there. was... was this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>